0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Brian Hamilton, and I'm joined today by Brian McCamick, author of the book Landscapes of Hope, Nature and the Great Migration in Chicago, published this past fall by Harvard University Press. Brian McCammack, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it.
0: Brian, could I ask you to begin by uh, sketching out your biography a bit? I, I saw your graduate training was in American Studies, but your undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering. That's quite a pivot
1: it is quite a pivot uh you know through a series of uh internships and you know slogging through courses with problem sets i eventually realized that i was not cut out to be an electrical engineer um but uh fortunately purdue where i I did get that electrical engineering degree uh does have uh some some great american studies faculty uh and i think i was one of the few engineering students who willfully looked for classes outside of engineering curriculum. Uh, And I took courses primarily in the the English department, but also in the history department, philosophy, and sort of cobbled together uh, an American studies minor and actually got an English minor uh, in undergrad. And it was those relationships that I built, again, primarily with faculty in the English department at Purdue, uh, Bob Lamb, who's still there, Kip Robish uh, in the environmental humanities, Uh, Then I parlayed that into a master's in American studies at Purdue where I ended up writing my master's thesis on evangelicals stances towards climate change policy. And this was in the the pre-Obama era during the era of, of Bush when it seemed like maybe there were some left-leaning evangelicals who could have some influence uh, on climate change policy. Uh, And then eventually, you know, ended up at Harvard doing American studies Um, and always knew that environment was sort of my central research interest. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, taking the the graduate courses at Harvard that I ended up, uh, deciding that eventually, you know, my interests would coalesce around the intersection of race and the environmental humanities. So, uh, I do consider myself primarily a historian these days, but definitely my training is in American studies, uh, and I think that comes out in Landscapes of Hope, uh, especially in, in chapters, uh, well, mainly in chapter three, I guess, uh, dealing with, with Richard Wright uh, and some other figures of the Chicago literary renaissance, uh, primarily in the 1930s. So uh, still leaning on that American studies training, but increasingly considering myself a historian.
0: Do you know how you came to the, your environmental commitments and interests?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I've been asked that before. And the best I can do is is think back to uh, my childhood. I actually grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. uh, So I was a townie in undergrad. uh, And remembering my parents, you know, just sort of that white middle class approach to environmentalism, always vacations to national parks and state parks, um, recycling, things like that. And I, I have this vivid memory of going out with my dad to water new trees that were planted in the city, uh, just you know, volunteer work, taking these massive or what seemed like massive uh, jugs of water when I was seven years old or so, uh, and, and watering these saplings uh, out in the city. Um, so that kind of engagement, I think, through my parents is what eventually led me to, to seek out environmental literature and environmental history classes uh, in undergrad, but then also in, into graduate school.
0: Hmm. Well, let's get into the book then. Uh, you've titled it Landscapes of Hope and playing off of the title of Jim Grossman's 1991 History of the Great Migration in Chicago, Land of Hope. Um, and scholars deploy the term landscape in so many ways at so many scales, and they often kind of use it figuratively. Um, but in your book, uh, you, mean it often, you often mean it to describe specific tangible spaces, places that one can point to on a map. Um, and the first landscape of hope that you present to your readers is, is Chicago's Washington Park on, on the south side. Um, Could you take us there and kind of help us understand how it fits into your story and the argument you're making?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So Washington Park evolves into the center of African-American culture by the late 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, And what this chapter really traces is how before it got to be that center of African-American culture on the South side of Chicago, that it was an interracial battleground. Uh, And that probably doesn't come as a surprise to uh, most of... The listeners to this podcast. Um, but when Washington Park was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Box in the 1870s, they were just coming off the design of New York City's Central Park. And Washington Park was part of uh, a, a broader parks network on the south side of Chicago uh, before the south side of Chicago was really built up. Uh, and to the extent that it was built up, it was a wealthy suburb um, that, that some of Chicago's white elite built these mansions, uh, the armors and Swifts, right? You have stockyards money, uh, steel mill money on the south side of the city. Uh, and at this period in the 1870s, uh, Olmsted and Vox are thinking about designing parks for the primarily for those white elite, although they had uh, designs on how that park space would be used by a, a broader swath of Chicago's middle and working classes. Um, So they design Washington Park in conjunction with Midway Plaisance that connects it to Jackson Park that lies along uh, Lake Michigan. And, uh, you know, altogether, this park system is larger than Central Park. If you add up the acreage of Washington Park, Jackson Park and the Midway Plaisance, uh, people may be familiar with with the Midway and Jackson Park uh, for the role it eventually plays uh, in the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Midway, uh, you know, becoming the Midway, uh, sort of the entertainment carnival barker area of the fair. And then Jackson Park is largely torn up uh, by all of the buildings that are built up and then and then torn down. Some of them burned down uh, after the fair. But Washington Park, which becomes this African-American cultural center on the south side of the city, uh, remains largely untouched by the fair. Now, at that point, you know, the, the park has been around 20 years or so, and It is still primarily a leisure retreat for the white elite in Chicago. Um, And that begins to change with the Great Migration uh, around World War I. So I date it from 1915. uh, The Chicago Defender, the preeminent African-American newspaper, not just locally in Chicago, but nationally, uh, has a great declares a great migration day in 1917. So some consider 2017, the year the, the book came out last year, to be a centennial of the great migration. Uh, that begins to change uh, the equation uh, as to who is seeking out leisure in some place like Washington Park, this massive 371 acre uh, green space. And this by this time in 1915, it's plopped down in the middle of what has become rather densely built. City. Uh, so to the east, you have the University of Chicago. Uh, to the west, you have a little bit further north of, of Washington Park the stockyards and all the residential areas that build up around there. Um, and the Black Belt, historically in Chicago, starts further north from Washington Park, really about 40 blocks further north. Um, a lot of migrants would disembark at the Illinois Central Station at 12th Street. Uh, and Washington Park starts at 51st Street. So uh, that's a space of about four miles, five miles. Um, and the Black Belt, as it grows, as migrants continue to stream into Chicago, uh, you know, Chicago has uh, an African-American population of just tens of thousands in 1915 when the great migration gets underway. By the time you get to 1940, when I end this story, more than a quarter of a million African-Americans call Chicago home. And the vast majority of those uh, call the South side of Chicago home. So as their residential area continues to expand, all the while constricted by, uh, you know, the, the things that Jim Grossman talks about in Land of Hope, restrictive covenants, uh, by the time we get to the 1930s, redlining, uh, and racial violence, right? The Black Belt is creeping ever closer to Washington Park. And that means that African Americans are ever more seeking out leisure there and saying, you know, as as equal humans, we came to Chicago for uh, in search of the sorts of rights that we were denied in the South, in the Jim Crow South. Uh, we have a right to experience leisure in this place right that's a massive meadow on the north side of washington park uh unbroken green space that is unmatched on the south side of chicago the south part of um washington park dominated by a lagoon that was dug out of the marshland uh and it's all pretty much as Olmsted and vaux had designed it again untouched by the 1893 world's fair and as chicagoans their residential areas creeping ever closer to Washington Park, seeking out recreation there. It becomes a locus of racial violence. You see this uh, as early as the nineteen teens, certainly even before. Uh, you know, but there's a tipping point, and you see this not just in Chicago, but in great migration destinations uh, across the north. There's a tipping point where you know you have whites, oftentimes working-class ethnic whites who are also using Washington Park for leisure, sensing that, all right, there are too many African-Americans, right? They are threatening our use of the park. Um, There's a tipping point around the late 19-teens, early 1920s, where distinct geographies, and I call them microgeographies in Washington Park, are threatened. uh, The the, the whites perceive them as threatened by African-Americans, uh, and the the lagoon on the south southern portion of the park is as a prime example of that. Um, the boathouse uh, becomes a locus of violence. You have the YMCA, the African American YMCA director saying that he's afraid that a riot can break that break out there uh, any given Sunday. Uh, and this is in the wake of course of the 1919 Chicago race riot, which also, doesn't have Chicago or doesn't have uh, Washington Park as its origin, but a little bit further north around 29th Street Beach, another recreation area, seeing that interracial tension manifest itself in these leisure spaces, right? Whether beach or park. Um, the YMCA director is concerned just a few years later that we might have another 1919 riot on our hands based on the interracial tension that you have in some place like Washington Park. So it becomes uh, a, you know, a a recreation area for African-Americans as they are basically fighting for their civil rights, saying that we are taxpayers in Chicago. We have a right to this space. Um, But what I'm trying to get at in the book and one of the broader arguments in the book, uh, not just in this chapter, but, but overall is that if we see uh, spaces like Washington Park, spaces like 29th Street Beach as exclusively spaces of interracial struggle, uh, as spaces of environmental injustice, right? Uh, working class, middle class whites trying, actively trying to preclude African-Americans uh, from those spaces. What we risk is obscuring the reasons why African-Americans wanted to recreate in those places in the first place. And that's an argument similar to what um, Colin Fisher has made in some of his writing. Uh, he's got a great book called Urban Green on Chicago and writes about some of these issues as well, not just for African-Americans, but working class ethnic whites. What I want to get at is uncovering why African-Americans wanted to recreate in these spaces. And I contend that it's not just about a, a, a struggle for equality, right? That there's something about uh, retreating to nature through leisure that is part of the promise of the Great Migration that they are struggling to realize, right? Because they were precluded from realizing those relationships with nature, uh, oftentimes in the Jim Crow South, uh, so that nature itself becomes significant in a place like Washington Park.
0: Yeah. And, and how different is, is uh, Afri- are African-Americans' ideas about retreating to nature, and they're kind of what we might call them today, environmental imaginaries? How different are those from those of, of, of rich and poor white Chicagoans?
1: Well, there's the first thing I would say is that there is, uh, you know, the full spectrum of uh, of class within the African-American community. So one of the things I do in this chapter uh, and in other chapters is talk about the way that working class African-Americans, your average stockyards worker, right, who is slaughtering God knows how many pigs a day, your average steel mill worker. Uh, who is who is sweating it out in, in a job that is inherently physically dangerous? The way that they seek out recreation uh, in these spaces is oftentimes at odds with the way the middle and upper class, what I call the black cultural black cultural elite, uh, think that uh, recreation should be experienced in those spaces. So one prime example of that. I use is, is thinking about how the tennis courts along the western end of Washington Park were used. Uh, and you see article after article in the Chicago Defender in this period, which is sort of the, the bastion of middle class African American thought, the black cultural elite, race uplift, all of these ideas about respectability, about how we should behave, uh, casting aspersions on working class African Americans who are trying to play tennis. Uh, In their overalls, right, in their work clothes, Um, or perhaps using the tennis courts and other spaces in Washington Park to play music. Uh, And you have African-Americans, the black cultural elite, looking at these working class African-Americans and saying, uh, basically saying, look, we can't have this sort of minstrel show going on, uh, especially when this is a period of racial transition uh, in, in the residences surrounding Washington Park. So they're they're definitely worried about the white gaze, right, of middle-class whites and what they think of a working-class African-American worker uh, playing the banjo, right, in Washington Park, uh, sort of perpetuating what the Black cultural elite fears is perpetuating stereotypes. So um, that said, you know, a lot of the, the cultural pathways and cultural patterns of recreation are very similar if you compare across races, right? Uh, The working class African-Americans playing baseball with working class whites. Uh, That's not to say that there isn't racial tension, right? But baseball is certainly a sport and an activity that is a point of commonality across the races. And you could say the same for fishing, right? Uh, There was an active fishing season in the Washington Park Lagoon, uh, and of course, it's it's the the lagoon is stocked by the Chicago Park District, or what was that? then the South Park Commission. Um, so it's not the same as African Americans, you know, fishing in the South uh, in, in a stream or or a pond, right? Or more than likely it's it's not stocked by some recreational authority. Uh, but what I try to point out is that there are unique ways in which African American migrants are able to translate, sorts of relationships with nature that were built throughout uh, the Jim Crow South and even dating back to slavery, translate them to an urban environment and show how this migrant population is becoming modern by retaining those Southern roots uh, and and modifying them, right? So fishing in the Washington Park Lagoon um, and translating that sort of activity from the South to the North. Uh, The same could be said for baseball. Baseball was hugely popular uh, in the South at this point, but it would have been nothing like uh, baseball was played on the Washington Park Meadow in the Northern portion of the park. Uh, You know, Washington Park Meadow is large enough to have 20 baseball diamonds functioning simultaneously. Right. So the, the scale of these activities and the sorts of, of cultural connections, the uh, cultural solidarity that can be built um, in a place like Washington Park is unmatched uh, in the South.
0: Yeah. And you, and you call it, you say it's something that kind of characterizes these landscapes of hope is this hybrid North South kind of recreational culture that you find in all of them. And, and after you, after you look at Chicago's urban green spaces, in the teens and twenties, you then expand out your geographical scope, um, and find, as you put it, in Black Chicagoans in unexpected places, namely resort communities and summer camps across the upper Midwest. And these two, you say, are landscapes of hope with this hybrid North-South culture. And tell us a bit about these places.
1: Sure. Uh, so as you as you said, that second chapter is called Black Chicagoans in Unexpected Places. I'm shamelessly or, or sort of paying homage, homage to uh, Phil Deloria's uh, Indians in u- Unexpected Places there. Um, and one of the key arguments of the book is that in order to understand how Black Chicagoans become modern, uh, we we need to move beyond the bounds of the city because the narrative set up by not only historians but uh, you know cultural producers within the African American community, like Richard Wright, uh, you know the author of *Native Son*, is one of the primary foils uh, in the book for me. Uh, in order to understand the African American experience, we need to go beyond the bounds of the city because. That way we can understand African-Americans as not merely – or or not restricted to the bounds of the city, not not completely bound by the strictures of things like restrictive covenants, uh, exploitative labor conditions that leave them less able – I grant that that they're less able to to venture outside of the city – but they are able to venture outside of the city and to experience nature, not in the constructed landscape of some place like Washington Park, uh, not in the landscape that Olmsted and, and Vox painstakingly designed, right? Uh, but in more natural, albeit constructed spaces like the Forest Preserve District surrounding Chicago, uh, like Idlewild's, the preeminent African American resort, which is in Michigan. Uh, And in youth camps is another primary site that I examine in this chapter uh, and then trace their evolution on through the depression in a later chapter. Youth camps like Camp Hammond's, which was uh, primarily for working class African-American women uh, employed by the stockyards and other major employers uh, on the south side of Chicago, as well as camps like Camp Wabash, which was the segregated YMCA camp that was established in Southwestern Michigan. Um, and again, those places are important because it, it challenges, I think our notions of what a migrant's life was like, uh, in the 19 teens and 1920s. And if we go to some place like Idlewild, right, you, you can examine someone. And I do examine someone like Jesse Binga, who was, uh, at least at one point, the most wealthy African-American and one of the most famous African-Americans uh, who had built his fortune in Chicago in the banking and, uh, and real estate industry. Uh, he ended up losing it all when the market crashes in 1929 and, and dies a pauper. Um, but at this point, during the, the, the onset of the Great Migrations, the black metropolis is constituting itself. You know, The wealth that Jesse Binga is amassing wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been amassed without those tens of thousands of migrants streaming into the South side of Chicago, depositing their savings in his bank. Uh, And by the same token, you know, uh, Robert Abbott, the editor of the Chicago Defender would not have made his name uh, at least not nearly as greatly right without African-Americans buying his newspaper in droves. And with that wealth, one of the things that Jesse Binga and Robert Abbott and countless others that I trace Uh, do is retreat to rural nature resorts like Idlewild in Michigan. Um, Idlewild was founded uh, in the 19-teens, roughly simultaneously, uh, contemporaneously with the Great Migration. And one of the things I argue about the significance of that resort town is that it gives the Black cultural elite a place to retreat and to experience nature without the strictures of uh, not the strict, without the strictures of restrictive covenants, without the threat of race violence, um, but also one of the things they're trying to do is get away from the working classes, right? I talked about the African American working classes. I talked about you know the way the Chicago Defender cast aspersions on working class African Americans and uh, their leisure practices in Washington Park. Well, you know that cultural divide the black cultural elite don't have to, to worry about that in Idlewild. So it's, it's a pure, pure as escape as possible. Um, and, you know, they are retreating to these resorts, much like the white elite are retreating to the, these resorts in this era. Um, you know, enjoying canoeing, enjoying hiking. You have the author Charles Chesnut talking about how much he loves to fish in the lake at Idlewild. Uh, so it really is this sort of idyllic natural uh, experience. But one of the things I point out is that African-Americans, as African-Americans, are never able to fully escape the realities of, of what they face primarily in the city, right? So the uh, the anecdote that I open up chapter two with is Jesse Binga away at Idlewild enjoying this retreat with his wife. And he gets a he gets word, he gets a telegram that his home on the south side of Chicago, incidentally, well, I, I argue not incidentally, but r- right across from Washington Park, right? He overlooks those tennis courts I was talking about. His home had been bombed for the umpteenth time. I think over the course of the 19th, yeah, over the teens and 20s, his home is bombed seven times. Uh, so he rushes back to Chicago to deal with that. So that's just a way to show that even as the black elite are constructing these spaces as an escape into nature, they are not actually able to escape. And that's of course, in addition to, you know, the, the very, uh, you know, material considerations, the the reality of having to consider how you get to someplace like Chicago from someplace like Chicago to someplace like Idlewild, which at this point in history was not a trivial journey. Uh, they initially built up, the city by attracting prospective buyers, prospective real estate buyers like W.E.B. Du Bois uh, by advertising uh, in Chicago and nationally. Obviously, Du Bois didn't have much of a connection to Chicago and, and taking them by train from Chicago. Uh, and now as automobiles become more prevalent in the 1920s, more and more folks were retreating to idle while they're driving. But then, of course, you have to consider where do you stop alongside the road in areas that are almost exclusively uh, populated by uh, white people, right? Uh, if you're driving from Chicago to, to Michigan and dealing with that potential for racial violence, uh, the threat is something that, that the black elite had to consider. So even though places like Idlewild were framed as an escape, uh, I, I would say you know, the, the unique thing that African-Americans, even as they are trying to uh, retreat to nature, uh, much like the white middle and upper classes are trying to retreat to nature to escape uh, this heaving urban giant that Du Bois talks about as he himself escapes to Idlewild. The unique thing, right, is that they are never fully able to escape the racial discrimination that they confront uh, in, in the city. Um so that's that's the the black elite. Now, of course, the the vast majority of black Chicagoans were not uh, of the black cultural elite. They were working classes, working in working as domestic laborers, working uh, in the stockyards, both men and women working in the stockyards, working in the steel mills. Uh, you know, they were they were the engine that was making Chicago go, and primarily. The, that population is not able to retreat to a resort, right? They don't have the money. They, don't, they can't get the time off work. Um, and the Black cultural elite knows this, but thinks it's vitally important to give something of that experience to the working classes. Uh, and that is how I transitioned to an exploration of the way the Forest Preserve District uh, surrounding Chicago functioned. You have uh, overnight YMCA and Boy Scout camps cropping up there you even have African-Americans setting up their own camps in the Forest Preserve District, uh, but also these farther, further flung camps and Camp Hammond, as I mentioned, uh, in northwest Indiana uh, and uh, Camp Wabash, which eventually becomes Camp Arthur in southwestern Michigan. These are camps. These are areas uh, that are primarily administered by the black cultural elite. Um, so so college trains, folks who are getting. Uh, jobs through the YMCA and other uh, social organizations like that, uh, and searching out ways to give that experience of a rawer form of nature. And you know, as environmental historians, we know that these areas, uh, particularly of, of northern Michigan, were not you know first nature, as, as Bill Cronin says. Uh, this this was the cutover in the late 19th century, virtually deforested. And at this point in the 19-teens and 20s, just beginning to come back from that, right? Transitioning from an industrial uh, extraction economy to a leisure economy. Uh, and those patterns accelerate during the 1930s with the New Deal uh, that I write about the Civilian Conservation Corps in the last chapter. Um, but this was a nature, right, that African-Americans are far, far from when they're living in the tenements on the south side of Chicago. So the Black cultural elite is searching for ways to bring African-American youth primarily to these natural places. Uh, And I argue that that in and of itself, right, the significant investment that the segregated African-American YMCA makes into some place like Camp Wabash signals just how important uh, nature is to African Americans in Chicago. And it, you know, you, and you see the black cultural elite saying this again and again and again. So one of the things that I try to get to, and one of the challenges of course, as a, as a social historian is, um, you know, how we get to the perspective of the working classes, right? You, you get a lot of documents that are from the perspective of that black cultural elite, right? They, they leave behind reports, uh, that make their way into the archives, Uh, University of Illinois, Chicago has the YMCA archives. Uh, So you have to read between the lines, but, you know, I also did a little bit of oral history uh, with some folks, uh, some of whom have since passed away since I did the original research for this book, but trying to get at the experience of places like uh, Camp Wabash. Um, And the conclusion that I come to is, is perhaps not terribly surprising is that when you put a bunch of seven, eight year, eight, seven, eight, nine year old kids and older uh, out in the middle of nowhere for a week, who are accustomed to the city, uh, some love it and some hate it. Uh, I think I think you could. Some so, some really take to uh, you know going on long hikes, uh, you know fishing in remote places, uh, doing the kinds of activities that were typical of camping, regardless of race in that period. And some absolutely detest being away from home, being away from their friends. Um, so in that sense, you know, part of what the project does too is, is try to trace, you know, how much the African-American experience of these spaces resembled uh, the white experience of these spaces, uh, which was very, very similar in many cases. But that white experience has been much more well-studied uh, over the years. And I think the African-American experience has been woefully understudied because if you look at uh, someplace like Camp Wabash, you have a pretty significant chunk. Uh, if you look at the, the enrollment, you know, summer after summer in the various enrollment periods uh, a very significant chunk of, uh, of young African-American men in Chicago having this experience. Right. So when we begin to realize that if you actually look at the numbers, that there was a significant chunk of, uh, African Americans having that experience. What does that mean for the perceptions of nature? How does that challenge these preconceived notions we may have based on earlier histories of you know these kids you know growing up exclusively uh, in the tenement district in the south side of Chicago? What how are their perceptions? How are their understandings of nature change with that week long experience uh, outside of the city? Perhaps going to the forest preserves for picnics, right, for shorter excursions. Uh, and going to Washington Park much more regularly, right? So so green space ends up factoring much more prominently into that everyday lived experience of black Chicagoans uh, than is typically understood.
0: And it's, impre- it's impressive how far you are t- able to get down to answering that question about the poorest black Chicagoans when, as you say, the source base is not not doing you a lot of favors there. know, we're, we're lucky to have the defender, of course, but as you put it, it's hopelessly paternalist. <laughs> Certainly, and certainly not not the voice of the newcomers, right? Not the voice of of, of those arriving in the city, and so. Um, but you do a lot. Of, you do a lot of really really interesting work and try to try to get at at that answer. Um, in the second half of the book, uh, you return to these camps, um, and Idlewild, and and even back to Washington Park, and you see how these landscapes of of hope have been transformed by the Depression and during the Depression. Um, and for instance, in, in Washington Park, you, you find it's become an ideological battleground for struggles within Black Chicago, as we're talking about. Um, how did that come to be?
1: Yeah. So. The you know by this time um, in you know it, by the market crash in 1929 as the depression deepens in the early years of the 1930s um, Washington Park has become a de facto African American park in in Chicago uh, that that period of interracial transition of interracial violence and tension has largely passed uh, whites both working class and middle class have basically decided. Uh, that they want to make, that they they do make Cottage Grove Avenue, which is the north-south street that runs on the eastern border of Washington Park, the de facto racial line. Uh, and that's, that's a line that separates Washington Park from the University of Chicago and all of the amenities of the University of Chicago, but it also separates black Chicagoans from Jackson Park. So whites basically decide that they are, and that you see this language uh, verbatim conceding some place like Washington Park to African Americans and retreating to Jackson Park. So, you know, part of what I do at the end of chapter 1 is trace how the those uh spaces of interracial conflict begin to shift by the late 1920s. And the the period that you're referencing in the early 1930s in Washington Park, it is uh, for all intents and purposes, with some exceptions. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I examine is communist organizing in the early 1930s in Washington Park. Uh, and that, to some extent, was interracial uh, organizing. But Washington Park, by and large, was an African-American park by the time the Depression hits uh, in 1929 and begins to deepen in the 30s. Um, and the it's interesting, the patterns you see within the African-American community about... Uh, developing uh, in that space are both uh, uniting and dividing. So there's a sense in which the the, the common struggle of the depression unites the African American community. Um, you know Jesse Binga, whose whose home, as I said, is right across from the tennis courts on the western boundary of Washington Park. Uh, you know he loses it all, right? Uh, He is struggling in in some sense as much as the stockyards worker who is unemployed and sleeping in Washington Park. Now, Jesse Binga isn't sleeping in Washington Park, um, but that common struggle. uh, uh, The common struggle of last hired and first fired that is exacerbated by the depression when unemployment rates are are sometimes approaching 50 percent amongst the African-American community in Chicago. Uh, unites the Black community. So you see concerns. And uh, this also has to do with migration attenuating, right? So you're dealing with a community that is more stable, uh, It's not figuring out how to welcome thousands of migrants uh, into the city each year, at least at the rate that it was in the teens and 20s. So a more stable community, you see Concerns about those uh, leisure practices in Washington Park fade away. So concerns that the Black cultural elite had about uh, baptisms in in the Washington Park Lagoon, which they feared, you know, resembled too much Southern folk culture, uh, those concerns begin to disappear. The concerns about, um, you know, playing, quote unquote, minstrel music uh, in the tennis courts, those begin to disappear uh, and one sort of the, what I open chapter three with uh, is, is talking about uh, Bud Billiken Day parade and picnic. The picnic uh, is the culmination of a parade. Uh, and that's in Washington Park. And it, it's a symbol of the community trying to come together uh, amidst this economic and social strife. Uh, the first Bud Billiken Day Prayed and Picnic in 1930. Uh, It's established by the Chicago Defender. So it's it's coming from the Black cultural elite. It's coming from the Black middle classes, uh, but with the explicit intent of welcoming those, uh, especially children, uh, who are struggling with the very real economic and social impacts of the Depression, going hungry, right? One of the primary objectives uh, or primary attractions of Bud Billiken Day is the free food that is offered Uh, For children. So uh, I begin the chapter with talking about how that was, you know, uh, striving uh, a way that the Chicago Defender strived for community unity in this period. But as you as you uh, sort of led with in your question is also a time of Disunity. It's a time when the black cultural elite's cultural authority and certainly economic authority as well is coming under question by entities like the Communist Party, uh, which African Americans uh, joined, not joined in large numbers, but certainly uh, were exposed to the message with soapbox orators uh, drawing thousands and thousands uh, on a daily basis in the early years of the Depression in Chicago. And those communist organizers, some white, but many of them African-American, uh, are talking about how the black cultural elite, the, these sort of titans that were that helped define the black metropolis uh, in the 19-teens and 20s, are bad for the African-American community. So calling out folks like Jesse Bingham, calling out folks like Oscar de Priest, who was uh, – one of the primary targets, actually, for the Communist Party in this era, uh, saying that you know he is responsible for African Americans being evicted by the hundreds, by the thousands, because he's in the real estate industry, right? Uh, now De Priest obviously weathers this storm. He was uh, the first African American congressman from the North uh, in in the twentieth century. Um, but he comes under attack. so it's a, it's a period when the black cultural uh, elite are being challenged from the grassroots and Washington Park in particular is a primary site of mobilization. Um, and, I, and I argue that you know it offered advantages that were unmatched by a street corner by a venue. Um, you know you have this 371 acre massive expanse that allows for the spontaneous gathering of of hundreds of thousands at a time in a way that other venues simply aren't. Right. Um, so you see it factoring prominently in the way communists are organizing and other radicals are organizing the early 1930s. And then what I trace as the, the chapter wears on is the impact that the new deal begins to have on these critical cultural spaces for African-Americans and the primary, uh, microgeography the primary locus for that is the uh pool that was built uh and opened in washington park in 1937 at that time the largest pool in chicago uh a, a great amenity for the neighborhood uh draws draws thousands in its first year the mayor spoke at its uh unveiling in 1937 uh and, you know, I spoke to residents who remember the pool, which is still there today. If you go to, to Washington Park today, it's, it's still, uh, you know, with, with some modifications, it's still used uh, by thousands of kids every summer. Uh, and I spoke to people who remember that as a cultural gathering place, right? And part of the, the, the significance of Washington Park, especially in the Depression, is that you could go there and spend your leisure time for free, right? Uh, it wasn't going to the theaters on the stroll, which was African Americans primary uh, entertainment district with theaters and bars and so forth. Uh, it was absolutely free in Washington Park and I, I spoke to several residents who remember that area fondly you know taking dates out on the, the rowboats that you can rent on the lagoon using the pool. Uh, but the, there's a, a darker side, I argue to, a sort of major amenity like this, uh, going into Washington park in 1937. Um, and it's, it's an argument that Jeff Wiltsey makes in his book, Contested Waters, right? Because this pool in Washington park is part of a much wider, much broader wave of, uh, pool building, but also recreational infrastructure, uh, engagement by the new deal in the 1930s. And the 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 dark side is that it's uh, in many ways meant to keep African Americans away from Jackson Park, which was still being guarded by middle class, working class whites. Meant to keep them away from that lakefront, Lake Michigan access in Jackson Park, and so you know the, the idea being if we have an amenity, the biggest again the biggest swimming pool in Chicago at this time, if we have an amenity like that. And what is by this time, certainly by 1937, a de facto African-American park, why would African-Americans need to venture outside of their neighborhood, right? So it it sort of redoubles uh, and reinscribes these patterns of segregation in a a sinister way, even as it is offering African-Americans a cultural gathering place. Um, So I make similar arguments about the way other infrastructural developments uh, factor into even more working class and uh, poor areas of the, of the Black Belt in Chicago, a little bit further north of Washington Park. The further north you go on the, the Black Belt, by and large, the more working class uh, the, the population is. Uh, fighting for a, a pool in some place like Madden Park, uh, which you know it factors into the tail end of my story in, in chapter one, again, about uh, the black cultural elite fighting for recreation spaces for the working classes, we get to the 1930s and they want a pool in Madden park as, as well. Uh, and they get one, a fraction of the size of the one that goes into Washington park. But again, Madden park is a de facto African-American space. Uh, and I make the argument that by putting these amenities into these segregated areas, part of what, uh, city planners are doing part of what the Chicago Park District is doing, and you see this in the archival record. Uh, is is making a play to sort of reinscribe those patterns, reinforce those patterns of segregation. Uh, and you know, one particular way I point it, point this out in terms of the the pool that goes into Washington Park in 1937. Is that I tracked down uh, a letter to the editor from someone named Jimmy Farrell, and I'm almost 100% sure that this is the James T. Farrell who writes, uh, who, who's a, an author who wrote um, a series of, of fictional works uh, following the the sort of thinly veiled uh, version of his own childhood. Uh, the character's name is Studs Lonigan, uh, and. Writes lovingly about Washington Park, writes about that racial transition that I talk about in chapter one, Um, writing a letter to the editor in the 1920s, specifically recommending, uh, based on conflicts at the lakefront in the late 1920s, racial conflicts at the lakefront, saying, if we want to avoid these conflicts, why don't we just put a pool in Washington Park? So less less than a decade later, you have, with the, the infusion of funding from the New Deal, Jimmy Farrell's recommendation finally coming to fruition. Um, so it is it, it's a it's a double-edged sword, right? The, those amenities for African Americans being enhanced by New Deal funding, but you also have those patterns of segregation being reinforced. So it's in line with those broader narratives that a, that a wide array of historians have talked about with a wide array of, of New Deal programs. That both benefit African American communities, but also work to further exacerbate inequalities.
0: And meanwhile, out in the country, what becomes of Idlewild and in the in the youth camps in the '30s?
1: Idlewild falls on hard times, unsurprisingly, right? I mean, this is a a resort town that is uh, that is based on the wealth of Black Chicago, and when that wealth of Black Chicago uh, and other you know metropolitan areas. Uh, in the Midwest, like Detroit, draws a lot to Idlewild. Um, when that wealth disappears, uh, Idlewild falls on hard times. So, in the the early 1930s, in particular, those darkest days of the Depression, uh, you see a lot of concern uh, in the in the newspapers in Lake County, Michigan, uh, and that's one of the primary archival source bases I use there. Uh, saying, you know, look, they're trying to put on a brave face. Uh, but people just aren't coming to Idlewild like they used to. I mean, if you think about again, someone like Jesse Binga, right—the the wealthy black banker—he's uh, he's got a lot of other problems to worry about without uh, being able to retreat uh, to to a resort. Uh, so Idlewild falls on hard times. And one of the interesting things uh, that I trace in a later chapter is that. Idlewild and the surrounding area actually begins to benefit from uh, New Deal labor uh, in the 19, mid, mid-1930s when you have the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, young, young African-American men, but also some, some young white men working in that area planting trees and trying to make it, again, a recreational destination. So that, in combination with the slowly recovering economy, Idlewild does survive uh, the 1930s and becomes, uh, you know, one of the primary destinations for touring African-American musicians in the 1940s and 50s. And it's not really until desegregation in the 1960s and 70s Uh, that it really falls on hard times. And it's sort of been struggling ever since. Um, Now, one of the things that I I trace uh, in terms of Camp Wabash, these other African-American camps outside the city, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, they too fall on hard times. Camp Wabash, uh, to a large extent, was dependent on philanthropic funding. Um, And when that dries up, uh, that becomes a huge problem. So. You have benefactors like Julius Rosenwald, you know, who famously built uh, several African American YMCA's across the country. Um, uh, donating, you know, the, the Rosenwald Foundation donating hundreds of dollars here, a few thousand dollars there, basically to keep it running. But one of the arguments that I make is that, given those constrictions of the Depression, they're actually uh, they actually. Ex- Camp Wabash and other camps become more broadly accessible during the depression because everybody is struggling and Camp Wabash actually becomes sort of differentiated from the boy scout camp, the segregated boy scout camp, boy scout camp in Michigan um, that becomes more of a middle-class camp in this period. Um, So it's, it's filling this vital social service need at the same time that it's giving African-American youth that exposure to the natural environment that was the goal of the Black cultural elite from the outset. Um, another thing that, that Camp Wabash does is it becomes uh, co-ed in this period. Uh, they, they hadn't welcomed young girls, but I think the, the financial burden of the depression sort of helped motivate this decision. Uh, so you're giving you know another half of Black Chicago's population at least the opportunity for these sorts of recreational retreats Um, you know, but this is also a period where, you know, camps in the forest preserves, which are are nearer to the city than camp Wabash and the nearer than camp Belknap. um, They are, some camps are are interracial in this period. Uh, Those camps are run by charitable organizations um, run by the, the, the city of Cook County, um, and you have African Americans in many cases uh, feeling completely marginalized, completely discriminated against uh, in exactly the way they were in the city. You see social workers reflecting that it's it's a pity that African Americans are subjected to the same racism in these camps and the same, uh, unequal conditions, the same environmental injustices that they're exposed to in the city when it, and in fact, you know, these retreats in the forest preserves are meant to get them out of that situation. Um, so in some senses, there, there's this feeling of, uh, you know, no escape, uh, similar to what I was talking about with with Idlewild, right, despite the fact that it's supposed to be this escape escape from not just the environmental pollution of the urban environment, but the the social pollution, so to speak, right, the racism that African-Americans focus or face um, on a a daily basis.
0: But there's also
1: a a sense of perseverance as well, because these institutions do do survive and end up flourishing into the 1940s during the second wave of migration.
0: Yeah. And in your final chapter, you pull in the Civilian Conservation Corps into the story. And unlike some of the other topics that you look at, the CCC is something that environmental scholars have thought a lot about. Um, But but how does looking at its work through the lens of the Great Migration add to or challenge what we already know about how the CCC shaped Americans' relationships with the land in this period?
1: Yeah. So that last chapter about the Civilian Conservation Corps – uh, is sort of an outlier because in the rest of the book I primarily talk about the way African Americans experience the natural environment through leisure, uh, and in this chapter we're really exam. I'm really examining uh, how how they experience that environment through labor, uh, and and the unique thing about the African American experience in the Civilian Conservation Corps, I argue in part at least, is that shared cultural history. Of labor on the land in the South, right? Because if you're talking about the the Great Migration and the push factors that are leading many African Americans to leave the South, it's not just uh, it's not just Jim Crow segregation. It's not just uh, a, a range of unequal conditions, right? It is in part that grueling labor on the land that goes back through slavery. So the sharecropping and tenant farming system, not all. African-Americans, not even a majority necessarily of African-American migrants to Chicago had that tenant farming and sharecropping experience. Uh, but many you know, had those connections, those familial connections, and certainly knew people who did. And they're trying to es- escape those exploitative labor conditions. And the interesting thing uh, about that population in the 1930s and thinking about how you end up with a quarter of a million African-Americans nationwide serving in the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, and a significant, uh, I think more significant than's been realized before. Uh, You did say, and and rightly so, that a lot has been written on the Civilian Conservation Corps, but not nearly enough, I think, on the African-American experience in the CCC. Uh, And sort of like the camp situation, the youth camp situation, I think more than is commonly understood, a significant chunk of black Chicagoans Uh, Of those uh, eligible young men served in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Um, And what you have is a generation of young men who either came to Chicago as young children and maybe had some distant memory of, you know, relationships with the land through labor, through their parents, through aunts, uncles, what have you. Uh, or in some cases, some of the Civilian Conservation Corps companies uh, are formed of World War veteran, World War One veterans. Some of them have a likely a more direct experience with labor on the land. And you have African American migrants who, you know, culturally, you know, if you think about the Great Migration as a cultural uh, grassroots movement trying to escape labor on the land. Here we are a decade later with the Depression finding themselves right back laboring on the land, right? The ideal was to work in the factories, maybe to work your way up to more middle-class professions, uh, to not do that sort of environmental labor that is characteristic of the South. And here we are in the 1930s. We're right back at it, right? Now, albeit the the, the work um, is, is, a, is different, right? Uh, but in many different, in the sense of you know, being your your overseer is someone uh, from the federal government. Uh, you're guaranteed the same wages that white laborers are. Uh, so there are you know certainly ways in which African Americans uh, benefited from the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, but one of the things that I look at is the the rampant discrimination that, that African Americans found even in the North, uh, in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Sometimes this was because overseers were uh, from the South. It's almost as if, you know, you, you're, you can't escape uh, the Southern overseer, um, even genera- generationally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Southern overseer that your mother or father uh, tried to escape in the South or the, the landowner, right, if you were a tenant farmer or sharecropper, trying to escape Right back here, commanding you as you're digging ditches and and, uh, draining uh, uh, marshlands in the north, Uh, finding the same sort of rampant discrimination in that grueling environmental labor. So white uh, enrollees given much uh, more skilled tasks, given much uh, less physically demanding tasks. Uh, And the African-American enrollees, you see this in in one of the the key sites that I examined in the Skokie Lagoons, which is just north of the city of Chicago, Uh, African-Americans given the most grueling labor. So literally digging lagoons out of marshlands. I I have pictures in the book of them, you know, wading knee deep in the mud uh, in the late winter, early spring. Uh, and meanwhile, you see commanders saying, you know what, it's because white commanders, uh, you see them saying, it's because African enru- African American enrollees are better cut out for this work. We're saving the more skilled uh, jobs of grading the land and so forth uh, for the white enrollees. Uh, and you look at images of African Americans working the Civilian Conservation Corps, whether it's in the Skokie Lagoons or whether it is in downstate Illinois. Uh, you know, working with farmland, whether it is planting forests in northern Michigan. These are other sites that I examine in the chapter. You look at the images of them working in these environments, and many of them are very reminiscent of uh, the Jim Crow South. There's one picture in particular that I'm thinking of, of a company of African-American enrollees working in a drainage ditch uh, in the Skokie Lagoons. And you have uh, a white overseer literally above them, right on the, the crest of the ditch, looking down at African-Americans standing in knee deep water. Uh, and it's those kinds of optics, those kinds of racial, uh, you know, power imbalances uh, that, you know, are very redolent of the South. So, you know, one of the things I do in the book more, more broadly is, is trace how African-Americans certainly with a great deal of of agency and empowerment translated environmental practices uh leisure practices and labor practices to a northern environment but were at every turn constricted by racial discrimination uh in in a, in a way that is not too different um in some cases from from what they experienced in the south right so you have you know de facto Uh, Segregation in the north, you have signs posted in the forest preserves and elsewhere saying uh, this is a Negroes only area. This is 31st Street Beach. The Chicago Recreation Commission in this period said, uh, you know, explicitly said in their in their advertising materials that 31st Street Beach was a Negroes only beach. Um, So even though the north is a, you know, de facto rather than de jure segregation situation. The the reality of African Americans uh, on the ground, their everyday lived experience and thinking about how they were constricted in certain spaces, how they had to risk uh, interracial violence, how they had to risk racial violence when they ventured outside of those spaces, much of that is redolent of the South. And you see that come through in the Civilian Conservation Corps chapter and at the end of the book.
0: Well, selfishly, before we go, I, I have to ask after you wrote such an exciting debut book, what's next on your plate?
1: Uh, Well, to be honest with you, I haven't gotten too deeply into it, although uh, Lake Forest College has blessed me with a pre-tenure sabbatical leave this semester, Uh, and I'm I'm taking a a research trip out to the Sierra Club archives in Berkeley, and I'm hoping that that becomes uh, part of a larger project in which I examine how exactly and why exactly uh, environmentalism Became or remained uh, a middle class and white movement in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. So I'm really interested in this period around the first Earth Day in 1970, when you have uh, Gaylord Nelson, right, who organized the first Earth Day, explicitly saying in his Earth Day address that environmentalism needs to be about the anti-Vietnam War movement, it needs to be about anti-poverty, it needs to be uh, as much about children rats facing rats and garbage in the ghetto as, as it is uh, about wilderness spaces right uh, so I'm interested in why that is a path not taken um, so obviously this this most recent book just came out and this is a, a project just in its infancy uh, and you know other scholars have written on this time period, uh, you know, Adam Rome and other folks, uh, have done great work. I think there's still more to be said about, uh, how race factors into this moment. Um, so I'm still working at the intersection of race and environment, but transitioning more explicitly to an environmentalism, uh, in the post-World War II era. Um, so, you know, I'm interested in situating, uh, I think Chicago is, is still a very rich, um, You know, place to examine these issues, situating uh, Martin Luther King's uh, Poor People's Campaign and the Chicago Freedom Movement in the late '60s in a in a more explicitly environmentalist discussion. If you think about the kinds of uh, housing conditions that he was challenging on Chicago's South Side, of course, the the sanitation workers' strike. People put that in conversation with environmentalism, Uh, but I also want to you know put that into a, a broader conversation about race and thinking about the. Uh, you know, farm workers in the South go beyond just the black white dichotomy um, and and go beyond Chicago too. So thinking about the way the Black Panthers uh, articulated a sort of a, a proto-environmental justice consciousness with the sorts of issues they were interested in in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and really think through, uh, you know, how this was, a, you know, A moment where it seemed like environmentalism could perhaps be a more broadly inclusive movement and give a backstory to how and why environmental justice as a self-conscious movement arose, not only in opposition, obviously, to the sorts of environmental inequalities that uh, that people of color were subjected to, but also to, in response to the mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream environmentalist movement that wasn't addressing their concerns, right? So how do we, how do we see the late 60s, early 70s moments uh, as generative of environmental justice as it comes to fruition in
0: the 1980s? Wonderful. Yeah, those are such crucial questions. And I'm really glad you're on the case. So <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for your time. And thank you for this book. And I really look forward to what comes next.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the time.